Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Subscribe, share it with your friends and loved ones, and of course support our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Dropping some Patreon-only interviews with Aaron Mate, Anya Parampel. We're talking about John Bolton and um, how hilarious his interactions with Trump apparently were. That will be dropping soon this week. Now, on this episode, depending on when you listen to it, the candidates I interviewed will either be elected or not elected or still running um on this episode i interview rt krybeck russ sirincioni and donna imam we are very excited to have her on rt krybeck she is running for congress and she's making uh her katie helper show debut so fingers crossed she gets the uh katie helper show bump hello hi how are you thank you so much for coming on the show no problem. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. You are not just a council member, but you're also a neuroscientist. I am. Uh, and you've been endorsed by Bernie Sanders and the Sunrise Movement. So tell us uh, about the person you're running against, because I got to say, it's sometimes it's hard to remember that he's a, uh, a Democrat. So he has uh, voted 200 times against the Democratic Party and our policies uh, over the three and a half years that he's been in office. He has voted in the calendar of 2018, he voted 77% of the time with Trump, right? So clearly not somebody who I think, who we know represents our district. We know he doesn't represent our district. We know he doesn't represent what we really need our elected leaders to be. Uh, you know, he is um, somebody whose uh, nickname that he embraces is the human fundraising machine because he gets millions of dollars from Wall Street, private equity, corporate PAC money, et cetera. And it's tied directly with his votes, right? So one of his first votes was um, to uh, roll back Dodd-Frank regulations. Right. And in the middle of a pandemic, uh, he was out there, only member of Congress, according to the New York Times and Huffington Post, uh, trying to make sure and advocating to bail out uh, private equity payday lenders. So wow. those wow. are not the priorities that we need to have in Congress. Right. And what uh, was your evolution? Like, how did you actually get into politics? So I've always been interested in politics, always been interested in the kinds of things that, you know, we need to be part of. So voting was something that in my family, absolutely a right, you know, you needed to do it, you needed to show your support. Um, we need to make that. Um, and, and to be honest, when I became naturalized, it was one of the things that you know I was the most excited about um, was the right to vote. Uh, it's something that I got on a soapbox about with my students when I taught them as well. Um, it's a big deal. I never thought that I would be in politics in this way. Never. Uh, never thought that this is what I was going to do. It was the Trump election, right? It was a distinct right. before and after for me. Um, that day, I had gone to um, vote with my boys. Um, we were wearing matching jumpsuit, matching pantsuits. We were, you know, going to vote. We thought it was a historic election. We had gone, get out the vote with them um, out in Pennsylvania, came back expecting it to be a victory. I was really shocked that it wasn't. Um, and for me, it has to do with explaining to my boys, you know, what happened. And it was not something that I could adequately do. And then in the weeks and months that followed, we had spikes in hate crimes. We had spikes in bias, spikes in bias incidences. And 
clearly folks in my community, my friends, people I knew really felt a lot more vulnerable than we ever had before. And my eight-year-old son, um, you know, I didn't realize he was paying attention quite the way he had been. Um, he came up to me one day, he was really worried. Um, he thought, um, he was really worried and upset because he wondered if I was gonna be able to stay in America as mm -hmm. his mom. He thought I was gonna have to be deported. That's what Trump was gonna do. He thought Trump was gonna de uh, deport my, my parents, his grandparents as well. And at the least he told me he was worried that my parents were gonna be targeted you know, because mm. they don't speak um, quite with the same accent I do. Um, and they don't look quite the same way you know, we do. Um, and that was gut-wrenching for yeah. me as an immigrant, you know, as somebody who had embraced this and, and really given back, right? Um, but what was more gut-wrenching was the idea and, and the thought and realization that there are so many parents who didn't have the luxury of hugging their kids and saying, no, no, it's okay. We're going to be okay. This is how we're going to get through it. Right. And there's so many of my friends and people in my community who rightfully um, felt more vulnerable, felt more insecure than they ever had before, either because of the way they looked or the way they spoke or who they loved. Right. Or and their, that to me, there's legal status or the amount of money they had or access to right exactly. medical or legal stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that at the end of the day was really what galvanized me to do a lot more. And I knew I just I couldn't be on the sidelines and in, in, you know, in any way, shape or form. Um, and that was it. I, you know, marched in the Women's March. Um, I organized and, um, and became an activist in, in at a different level than I had been before. I organized a grassroots group, really decided to invest in that idea that change has to be in at the local level. And so I stepped up to run for council in my town. Never thought I was going to do that before. Focused on climate change. Um, I won. Mm. Right. And I won not because, you know, I had some magical political genius. Um, I won because we had a group of volunteers. We, we organized. Um, I reflected the values that people wanted to see um, in, in, in their elected officials at whatever level. And I focused on climate change over the past couple of years in council. I'm really proud. I'm really proud of the initiatives we've taken. You know, one of my proudest achievements is the fact that I led the initiative for my entire town to have 100% clean renewable energy at default. Wow. Right? Yeah. People can opt out of it if they want to, but it's 100% clean renewable energy. Um, this is this is a scale of thinking that we need, right? And it wasn't easy to do. It wasn't simple to do. You had to work across the aisle. I had to talk to folks and explain what we were trying to do and why and what was important and what was in it for them, right? But the thing is, we got it done. Mm -hmm. It was a bold idea. It's a bold idea, bold action that we took against climate change of, to mitigate changes that are occurring because of climate change. And we were able to get it done because we had the right elected leaders who were going to fight for this. And what this taught me is that, yes, you can't do it alone. You can do it when you're willing to fight for something. And you can actually achieve those bold things that we need to do. And I think that's the kind of scale of thinking that we absolutely need. I mean, it's imperative. We've needed that for a long time, but now more than ever, with all the crises that we have, this is absolutely where we need to go. And so when you contrast that with my Congress member, who I thought in 2016, right? He was that like glimmer of hope that I had. I thought what he was going to be doing was fighting for us in Congress. I was happy he won. Um, 
then he not only started to not fight for the kinds of things that we needed, he is undermining kind of policies that we need moving forward. Um, you know, so he voted, his very first vote was to roll back Obama regulations on environment and health. Very first vote. There was no reason for him to be on there. Absolutely none. And he voted that way. He voted for border wall funding. Hmm. He voted to roll back Dodd-Frank. Then there came 2018, where the entire year he voted 77% of the time with Trump. In the middle of the pandemic, as I mentioned, he voted to, he just, he tried to bail out predatory lenders. Wow. Um, the thing that the event that made me run for Congress, that made me decide that I was going to primary him, was almost exactly a year ago. Right? We learned about the humanitarian crisis at the border. We learned about family separation. We learned about kids that were in cages and the fact that we weren't even giving them toothbrushes or blankets. And I remember those videos, I'm sure we all do, um, the audio of the right. kids crying, all of that. We were heartbroken, all of us here. We were, I mean, all over the country, I think, when we saw the kinds of things that were happening. And then two weeks later, there was an emergency appropriations bill that came up in Congress. My Congress member was the one who led the charge to make sure that there was no guardrails, there were no accountability mm. in that bill. Published reports um, show that he was the one who led the charge to make sure that there was no accountability. Wow. When he did that, I felt and I knew that as a former supporter, he had made me morally complicit in that decision making. And much the same way that I did with my, when my child came to me, I knew I just couldn't sit there anymore. I couldn't let that happen. Right. And I felt responsible for the kinds of things that he was doing because I had helped him. Yeah. And I knew that it was time that we needed somebody else who was actually going to represent the people who was actually going to be doing this because we really needed somebody who represented our values in Congress. And I will say that recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, there was a news report that came out. So those those millions of dollars that we that were appropriated with no accountability, all the things that we thought were going to happen, where we thought that they were going to be misappropriated, that it wasn't going to go to humanitarian aid, it wasn't going to go to medicines and all those that, this come true. Mm -hmm. Essentially, there was a report from the Government Accountability Office um, that actually talked about how a bunch of that money, instead of going to medicine and humanitarian aid, went to things like ATVs and uh, you know other issues that they were not supposed to go for. Right. So we know... And he knew, right? We knew that this was going to happen. He knew this was going to happen. And not only did he let it happen, he enabled it. You know, and he has voted with Trump on his anti-immigration agenda more than 26 times in the three and a half years he's been in office. What makes him even, do you have any, I mean, you may not know, but why does he even identify or run as a Democrat? That is a really good question. And I don't know, because he's clearly not. Right. Um, maybe just like that way the district runs is usually them. I mean, maybe he just thought it'd be more strategic or. Expedient. So he, um, I, you know, I think his politics tends to be transactional. So yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, I'm not interested in transactional politics. I think mm -hmm. we need transformational change. I'm interested in politics that is actually about helping people. Cause that's at the end of the day, what government is about. And that's not idealistic. That's literally what it's about. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of the social contract. That's why I became a council member. Um, that's why, you know, th those are the ideals that I embraced when I became a citizen of this country. And I truly believe in them. 
Um, we have a long way to go, but we're not going to ever get anywhere to build a system that actually works for everybody unless we have political leaders who actually believe in that as well. And was he false advertising uh, or did he change? Because you said you supported him. In fact, I, 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 when I was Googling a photo of you for, to, for the thumbnail for this and I saw you with him. I was like, did someone photo? And it was his like Facebook page and it was like proud to be with her, yeah. you know, with these people and you were there. And I threw, I was like, did he photo, did someone Photoshop this in right. like a, a political oppo uh, against um, yeah. private no. campaign? But, no, right. So we had a horrible Tea Party dude um, right. as our Congress member for, you know, 10, 12 years before. Yeah. Right. So we had been trying to get rid of him. Um, you know, I had supported, uh, you know, candidate or two before Josh. Um, he came on scene. Um, you know, we thought he was our chance. In fact, he was honestly my first non-presidential lawn sign I had on my lawn because oh, yeah. I really wanted it gone. I really wanted, you know, the Tea Party the guy gone. Mm -hmm. um, and I really did hope that he was going to be really who we needed, right? Because the pre-Trump world, um, especially with the Tea Party guy that we had, I thought, all right, well, this guy is at least going to be a Democrat. At least he's going to be better than what we have. Yeah. Um, and that's it. And then the Trump election happened. And look, it was a seismic change, right? It was a seismic change for so many of us, this election. It, you know, for those who weren't woke, woke up quite a bit. Um, those who had been woke for a while um, got even more frustrated and angry and upset, um, depressed. Um, in other ways, I thought, you know, in NJ5, there's been a real change. We've had so many organizations, especially women's organizations who, or women who came together to fight and to be activists. Just so people and, know, that's New Jersey's uh, District 5, just because, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was, and we really thought that this was going to be the same thing with our Congress member, right? When he saw that Trump was elected, nobody thought that this was going to happen. We thought, well, of course, of course he understands what you need to do now, which is not to be this conservative you know, person. I mean, he tries to pretend that he's a moderate, but he's clearly not. He's yeah. clearly on the more conservative side of the uh, spectrum. I think he was ranked one of the you know top five House conservative Democrats. Wow. Uh, we are not top five <laughs> conservative districts right. in NJ5. So is he pro, I mean, whatever that, I mean, I'm just, is he pro choice? Does he like tick that box? He does. So he does play a lot of yeah. lip service, right? Yeah. So he does tick the bro box of being pro choice. Right. Um, but nowhere in there is his real leadership. Um, and really, yeah. you know, we don't just need somebody who's pro choice. We need somebody who's always going to be there and fight for us all right. the time. Right. Yeah. And so he voted. There was a bill that came up much early on. And one of the provisions in that bill um, was really about heartbeats and, you know, in in, yeah. in how we're abortion lies. And he voted yes for that. And it was a you know relative minor bill, as he put it. I would never have voted yes. on Right. That. And it doesn't matter how minor that is. Right. It doesn't matter if it's one bill. Um, because those, as a woman, reproductive choice and reproductive justice is really what I'm about. Yeah. And that's what we need. We need people who have a very clear-eyed sense of what you, not only what you stand up for, but who you center, right, mm -hmm. in these conversations and how you advocate for them. Um, and he's not. He's not a fierce defender um, right. of women or any other uh, folks who feel marginalized right. or unheard. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's funny because a lot of Dems are good in – in rhetoric and symbolism on things like immigration stuff. I mean, I remember you brought up the stuff about the kids not having um, toothbrushes and they slept with like aluminum blankets. And I remember there was this viral video of a woman being kind of 
a lawyer being kind of like schooled by these judges who couldn't believe she was saying these things. She was like arguing that it was sanitary, that it wasn't unsanitary to not have toothbrushes. And then it turned out this woman was a Justice Department appointee um, who had been appointed by Obama. Yeah. Which I remember was like, oh, yeah. So this is like, yeah, there is a lot of performative stuff. And then at the end of the day and, you know, I think. It's not that hard. I think a lot of people go to one extreme or the other where Trump is this total aberration with no connection to the past or he's not. Or, or on the other hand, people say he's he's not unprecedented. And I think the truth is he's both. Um, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think for um, too many people, we have gotten to the point where we just say that Trump is the entire problem. Yeah. Right? And we right. know that that's not true. Because right. when he's gone in 2021, we have a huge mess. We have systems that we have perpetuated right. for centuries that yeah. we need to dismantle. And we need yeah. to take ownership of that. And we need to take responsibility for that. Right. And if we get rid of him next term, I mean, that's great. But, like, it's not going to change the, the conditions that gave rise to Trump. Exactly. So you'll have another one. Curious about your neuroscience uh, work and research <laughs> and what, if anything, has to do with your politics. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't, but yeah. <laughs> My well, dad's a psychiatrist and a very research-based, though. Oh, that's great. That's really interesting. So I actually worked for a psychiatrist when I was doing my oh. research as well. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So my my work was on opiate addiction. Oh, and, okay. And so fact, it's very relevant. Yeah. In fact, my... My PhD thesis was on how stress can cause you to relapse, um, particularly if you have oh. opiate administration, um, you know, opiate use, drug use, et cetera. Um, and really, what are the proteins that are changing your brain um, that cause this to happen? Um, and this was something that really hadn't been studied quite to the same extent that it is now. Um, and really talking about how our brain changes um, with stress. Obviously, right now, it's fairly relevant when we talk about um, the scourge that we have with opiate abuse, with the kinds of things that are happening all across, you know, all across the United States, right? Um, in rural communities, um, like what we have in my district out west, um, suburban communities, and obviously, this has been happening in urban communities for a very long time as well. Yeah. Um, but I think more than that, for me, you know, I have always wanted to be a scientist. This was a dream come true for me. Um, and I loved it. I loved being a scientist. I love, I always thought that's how I was gonna make the you know, world a better place. Never thought that I was going to have to defend the fact that science is real, defend the fact that we need to have policies that are based on science, um, that are based on data, that are based on trying to make sure that we are doing the most good for the most amount of people, right? Uh, and that's lacking right now in Congress. That is lacking in government in general. I mean, when you look at this pandemic crisis, for example, I mean, scientists knew what was coming. Actually, most people knew what was coming if mm. you knew where to look. Um, and we just ignored it. And the tr Trump administration, Donald Trump, essentially muzzled scientists, muzzled public health experts, you know, reckless, complete reckless disregard for human life. And we've lost tens of thousands of people unnecessarily because of this. Um, the economic crisis that we have is, you know, for a large part unnecessary um, in a lot of different ways. Um, we could have done a lot more earlier. So we need more scientists in Congress. Um, you know, when I win, I'll be the first female PhD scientist in Congress. Wow. But, That's right. Really, yeah. I didn't, I wouldn't have thought, I guess that makes, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. That's not a barrier I want to be breaking though. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, I that's, that's really, point. yeah. I, I wonder how many PhDs there are. Women PhDs. Many. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. They're MDs, but the MDs are really scary. There tend to be a lot of like Republican MDs, I feel like, but I don't know if there are any women, but 
for whatever yeah. reason those are scary yeah and can you tell me more about your like your personal experience where your parents are from um and then uh what their what your journey was like in terms of you know naturalization so i came here when i was 11. um i was born in india i was born in um, bombay and um, my dad actually came here a few years earlier than us um, to save money and you know to bring us all over um so for us the path was my parents working class um, we were lucky that my grandmother had come over um, a while ago because of the nursing shortage. So, you know, she had come over because of that. And then, you know, slowly we had been able to come over afterwards because of it. To New so, Jersey or? Actually, I grew up in Queens. Uh, oh, in Jamaica, okay. Queens, yeah. So my dad, he went to, well, no, he oh. grew up in Flushing, but he went to Jamaica High. Oh, that's great. I was actually very near Jamaica um, high when I grew up. Um, yeah, no, I came, I, I loved living in Queens. I have to say yeah. I had no idea quite how lucky I was with how multicultural it was. I will say that it was very alien when I first came here. Yeah. Um, and it was very, it was very different. Oh, people my mom was a professor at LaGuardia Community College. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's great. People don't know. Yeah. That's fun. So did you grow up in New York? I did. I grew up on the Upper West Side. My mom's from, I'm half Bronxian, half Queensian. So yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you have yeah. all the attitude. Yeah, and exactly. All the food. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> well, uh, in Queens yeah. for a long time, we were like, we were just ignored for a very long time. I mean, second maybe to like Staten Island. Right. Um, yeah. But the now. Rock, the rock, the dump that is Staten Island. No offense. But it's, that's a very stratified place. It's like it utter is. poverty and then other like, not just richness, but totally gaudy richness. Anyway. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's a different world for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had no idea how lucky I was growing up yeah. in Queens until I left it, I have to say. But yeah, no, we, we came, um, I came when I was 11. Um, I actually still remember getting off the plane um, at JFK. Um, still remember quite how scared and anxious and excited um, I was, um, you know, I hadn't seen my dad in a few years. My brothers hadn't seen him. I remember my youngest brother asking if he was going to, you know, be able to recognize my dad. Mm. Um, and I remember, you know, all of it you know, when we came and we came because, you know, my parents really uh, wanted that better world. They wanted that apocryphal American dream for us. Right. Um, and it was really hard because my grandfather in India had been a freedom fighter. Um, so he was, you know, one of the ones who um, worked in the movement against uh, colonialism was able to help free India. So for us, you know, that kind of um, love of our country, that kind of, you know, activism was something mm -hmm. I just, I guess I grew up with without really understanding that that was abnormal or that, you know, that that was something that not all families really talked about. Um, so we came to Queens. Um, my parents sometimes worked, you know, two jobs. We were definitely far from, you know, being well off. Um, but I will say we were very lucky. We were very fortunate in the kinds of chances that we got and the kind of opportunities that we were able to take advantage of. Um, I was very lucky in in school because I really enjoyed it. I really wanted to be a scientist ever since I was a little girl in India. And it was very odd for people you know, to realize that this is what I wanted to be. Um, and I was able to fulfill that, right? And so were my brothers. Um, and, you know, my dad and my parents actually just about 20 years ago finally f fulfilled their American dream of buying a house. Um, happens to be in Jersey. So we joke that New Jersey gave them, you know, their dreams come true. Right. <laughs> rarely, <laughs> rarely has happened in the past. No, um, no, it's, it's, it's great. We were able to do that. Right. But I know that we were fortunate and I know that this is not the way the system works for everyone. Right. Um, and the fact is, more often than not, there are so many more barriers. 
know, the me that I was many years ago, I don't think I would succeed now to the same extent because of the kinds of things that I know um, are there right now. You know, I mean, I went to college, definitely had to choose where I went to college based on the number of scholarships I got. Um, I still had student loans when I left that, you know, I paid off for a long time. Now that debt is even more crushing than it was before. You know, there would be no way that I would be able to follow my dream of being a scientist, right? There, I don't think there would be a way of me to finish college in quite the same way that I did um, when I was younger. And that is not where we should be as what we call ourselves as the richest country on earth, right? right. This, is not what, this is not where we should be at all. Um, and to me, I feel very deeply that we really need leaders who are going to step up and not only understand that, but really be able to change the system, right? This is what we need to do because we really need to be able to take care of all of us moving forward. And I care very deeply about this because I know what we can be, right? And I know how much I've benefited from it. Um, and it's, it's way past time that we actually have a system that we build that actually builds in that equity for everybody. Um, we have some questions um, from listeners, uh, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Uh, great. Um, let's see. Where is this? Um, where is this? I just saw a question. There's a lot of, because, uh, you know, my viewers are lefties. So, of course, there are a lot of comments. Okay. I'm looking for the actual questions. Uh, let's see. Oh, is Pelosi supporting um, your opponent? She is, yeah. She has uh, um, endorsed him. All right. I know you well, this is what that. happens when you go up against the establishment, right? Yeah. I mean, look, nobody, um, especially in Jersey, especially when it's establishment, really likes a primary challenger, even though, frankly, in this particular case, it's quite clear um, why I'm challenging and where we, we're going to be. There are way too many barriers that are put in place for primary challengers, uh, you know, from the DCCC blacklist um, onto the kinds of decisions that are made on the ballot line, particularly in Jersey. Um, the incredible thing about my campaign is that we have overcome all of those barriers, and there are so many um, to list from, you know, the moment I decided to do this and announce um, till now, right? There are barriers upon barriers that come up. The reason that my campaign has been able to overcome them is because the kinds of policies that I'm talking about, the kinds of politics that I'm talking about is are things that resonate across the district. We know that these are popular policies. We know that people really need them and want them and are actually resonate with people. My story resonates with people because everybody has felt you know, some of that pain. And they understand that when I sit there and I talk about those experiences, I do understand where they're coming from. And I will say that that's why it's been incredibly exciting to be part of this, right? We have more than a thousand volunteers right now working for our campaign. We have more than a hundred student fellows working for us. Um, and that excitement is really palpable. And this is, you know, part of why I've been honored and thrilled to be to be endorsed by Senator Bernie Sanders, to be endorsed by Representative Ina Presley, Sunrise Movement, and so on, and Indivisible among, you know, lots of other folks who are on board with us. We're gonna make that change happen. <laughs> Can you discuss private industry taking publicly funded research and profiting off of it? Any solutions? Private industry taking publicly funded research and profiting off of it. Yeah, no, for sure. So look, um, when I was in academia, you know, I was, I, I believe, and I still do, um, in publicly funded research. I think there's so much value to it. I actually also think that we need to have far more women, far more, um, 
um, minorities, um, far more folks who are gender nonconforming on some of those um, sections that actually um, set the policy um, for what science should be, for what research should be. And yes, absolutely, we have uh, private industry um, that does profit off of it. Um, I know this, I know this from the inside. Um, I actually used to work for pharma for three years. I left academia. Um, I became a clinical educator in two different pharma companies for a total of three years. Um, I saw from inside the bellies, <laughs> the beast belly as it were, mm -hmm. um, of what it was like. Um, I had hoped that we had a lot that it was a different world, particularly on the research side or particularly on the, you know, on the medical educator side that I was in. And I realized that that wasn't the case, which is why I actually left. And, yeah. you know, I, I tried two companies thought, well, maybe it was just one company right. realized that this was just never going to happen. Uh, and I realized that I couldn't make that change happen from the inside, um, you know, of that particular structure. It's because of exactly that. We have way too many laws. We have way too many regulations that continue to side with corporations that continue to side with pharma. Um, you know, we have a bill um, yesterday, I think, that came up um, where the House voted on this um, to protect and expand ACA. Um, we had Republicans, I think 178 Republicans that came in with this poison pill last minute motion to recommend amendment, right? Um, and that gave, um, frankly, um, Health and Human Rights Secretary um, Alex Azar veto on whether or not that happens, um, you know, under the guise of helping pharma companies, for example. My opponent actually voted with the Republicans on that yeah, particular bill. Not surprisingly. Yeah, again, not surprisingly. Yeah. We really need actually a lot more regulation on um, on the kind of research. We need a lot more freedom on what, you, what we're able to do with that. Um, you know, what I found out when I was in pharma, um, which was the most disappointing part, um, was the fact that there's no real room for true innovation there. There's no real room. There's no priority for what public health needs, right? right? The profit, the for-profit motive outweighs everything. Um, even if you as an individual in that system want to change, even if you as an individual um, or you know a number of individuals want to make that change, it is impossible to happen. Um, right. And really what we're doing, yeah. And really what, what um, the companies are doing for the most part um, for the majority of what they're doing is really recycling drugs so they can extend that patent um, and reformulating them just so they're able to, you know, increase the price um, and keep going um, in a new formulation, calling it a new drug. That is not innovation. That is serving nobody except them. Um, and clearly, if we're publicly funding that in that partnership as a government, we need a lot more leverage, which we actually have. We just need to own that power, which mm -hmm. we won't because until unless we have political leaders who are willing to do that um, because they're not funded by corporations. They're not funded by pharma in that way. It's funny. It reminds me a little bit of the conversations we've been having about police where, you know, there's this assumption that if you have a more representative, diverse police force, and if police are policing their own communities, you won't see as much violence or as much bias, but it's just so baked into it. It's like so built into it and the quotas and pulling people over. And then that's where all this stuff kind of occurs. It doesn't have to be this like, oh, you know, overt ideological commitment to, yeah. you know, so there's probably like, sounds like there's a similar thing. Except that I think in pharma, there is an overt ideological commitment at the top. Um, you know, right. Yeah. That, at yeah. the end of the day. <laughs> right. No, that's so true. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about, uh, do you, I'm just curious, like, so uh, do you go back to India, to Bombay? Do you have a, like, family there? Do you have a relationship, strong yeah. relationship with the country and, and, I that's, do. and that city? Yeah. 
or other cities there? I yeah. do, although, um, you know, my family has moved out mostly out of Bombay. My right. grandmother still lives there, but, um, you know, they live in Pune and Bangalore. Um, oh, I've so been there. I've been to Pune. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah. That's great. So it used to be a tiny city when I was living there. Now it's this, like, whole bustling metropolis yeah. that I yeah. can't, you know, that I can't quite make heads or tails out of. But there's a lot of industry there, a lot of development, obviously. Um, so we went, actually, my whole family went, um, gosh, three years ago now. Uh, and we'd gone, you know, we, we don't go back every year, but we do go back quite a bit. Um, the internet makes it much easier right. to stay in touch with, um, you know, my cousins and, and you know, my family that's there. Um, I will say that one of the benefits of having family in India um, is really understanding the dangers of nationalism in a different way. Right. Yeah. Um, the rise of nationalism that we see in multiple different company, uh, countries, including yeah. India. Right. Um, the other thing is also being able to have firsthand stories about what climate change means mm. in different ways. Um, so, you know, while here in, in the U.S., I think we're insulated for a large part, not for long, but we have been insulated for a long time with um, our farming and what climate change has done in terms of effects. Um, you know, we have known with family in India who have gone through famines, who have gone through great inflation of prices um, for basic goods like flour and things like that because of the kinds of crops and the kinds of farming that hasn't happened because of massive flooding, massive fires, all of those things and droughts um, because of climate change. You know, those, you know, the rest of the world also knows what's happening. You know, our farmers also know what's happening. And this particular existential crisis that we're living with that is here right now is one that everyone understands, I feel as if, and has an urgency towards except for the gatekeepers who are our political leaders who don't want to move on this issue in America. Mm -hmm. um, and that is truly tragic. Um, and it is detriment to all of us. Um, and it's something that's, you know, very important. It's something that, you know, I've cared about obviously for a very long time, um, as a scientist, as a mom, as a human being. And it is mind boggling to me that we're not doing more, that we're not electing political leaders who will actually take bold action on climate, um, because it's just a necessity and imperative for all of us to survive. And was your, uh, family political? Did your politics evolve over the course of your life? Um, yeah. So my family was political, at least. Um, Where you, you said know, your, grand, your grandfather? Yeah. 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 So my grandfather was a freedom fighter. So, you know, we had a lot of pride in that. I grew up on stories about him, you know, um, fighting for India, fighting against um, colonial rule. Um, and for us, that was a great source of pride. My other grandfather who died actually when I was a few months old, um, you know, had also been involved in different ways with that. So for us, that was a great point of pride. I actually, one of my earliest memories is um, of my dad voting. And in India, you put like, or you did, you put like a mark on your forefinger oh, uh -huh. um, in there to show that you had voted. And I remember distinctly being very excited um, to see the mark and, you know, realize that that, you know, what it meant, et cetera. So that's, you know, so we were a family that was political in that sense. Um, we came to America and, you know, we weren't, right? It was, mm keep your head down, right. do what we need to do to survive, don't cause waves, um, you know, don't really get involved because we really just need to make sure that we survive and that, you know, we're able to do what we can do. Um, so it was, you know, it was quite different. And it wasn't until while well, I had my own views uh, the entire time, I really, frankly, chafed um, under the patriarchy that we had um, in India. Um, this was really never something that I've felt comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I love my country of birth. I love my heritage. I love my culture in multiple different ways. Um, 
have ha always had huge problems with yeah. with patriarchal notions of what that means. Um, always rebelled in you know kind of ways. Um, went ever since I was young, um, and so for me, you know, I developed those. I think because of that, I developed my own ideas. Um, you know, throughout life, um, particularly in college and afterwards. And you know, for the most part, you know, my parents and I didn't really talk about nuances. Um, you know, I think until almost until uh, Obama was president, I have mm. to say. Um, and then, you know, there were conversations that we had that were, you know, quite a bit different. Um, and, you know, but we definitely are political. My, my husband and I, I think one of the things that we agree on, I think the reason we're married is uh, how close in thinking we are <laughs> to each yeah. other um, and the kinds of things that, you know, we care about. And our kids um, are definitely political. And if they weren't before, they sure are now. Right. So, How old are they? There's an eight. One of them is eight, you said? Well, he was. No, he, he was, was eight. eight. Um, he is now 12. And the other one is 14. Um, okay. And both of them also love to debate. Um, word of advice to parents out there who think this is awesome. It is until they become teenagers. Right. And then you really wonder why they're trying their skills out on you. Right. Oh, I see. They're debating about, like, taking out the trash. Yep. Yeah, you've got to you got to bring up politics and more so that they're that they, yeah exactly yeah yeah there's <laughs> that um and uh uh what languages do you speak so I speak English obviously um I grew up speaking uh, Marathi um yeah. and so I speak that um I used to speak Hindi quite a bit better than I do now but I understand it quite well um smattering of Spanish um and a little bit of German which is my husband's heritage so oh god okay and your kids. Uh, they speak uh, English, German. They're picking up French, a little bit of Spanish, and then a little bit of Marathi as well. Oh, good! You got to speak to them. You and your husband each I'm have trying. to speak to them in yeah. those languages because it's such. It's like effortless when they're young. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and any anything else that you want? Oh, someone asked if you've reached out to Rokana for an endorsement. Who? It's he. I know. We've, I've had him on the show a bunch. I love talking to him. He's such a nerd. Uh, like me. Um, and uh, he I know his his grandfather was involved in freedom was also, also I think was in jail, uh, was jailed in India for, you know, yeah. involvement in the freedom fighting. So um, was my grandfather. So was there was what? a lot of those. I said, so was my grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was a lot of them there. Um, you know, I haven't talked to him uh, face to face anyway no. uh, in a while. But yeah, I would welcome that. Um, so, hey, if you have a hookup, let me yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll email him. <laughs> um, uh, were you excited about your uh, Bernie Sanders endorsement? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. So hype. Uh, no, it was amazing. It was such an honor and such a thrill. And I can't, I can't begin to tell you how much it means, right? Yeah. Um, because even before Not Me Us really came out, uh, the things that we talked about in my campaign, you know, things that are really at the bedrock of my campaign is really that, right? Because it's not just about me as a candidate. And I've said that you know, from the beginning. It is about our community coming together and really demanding better, right? Demanding um, that we have representation that actually reflects what the communities need and deserve. And the only way we're going to get that is when we come together and make it happen. And really, you know, when I was talking about having a campaign that, you know, overcome, overcame these odds and has been overcoming these barriers, it is because of our supporters. It's because of the grassroots strength that we have. It's because everywhere I go, folks come together and, you know, want to be involved in this movement, know that it's important, are really excited about it, right? So to me, that has been the core of what we're doing 
doing. Um, and then having somebody like Bernie, who's been doing this for you know, decades at this point um, and really fighting for those ideas um, that we all now think are, you know, just, of course, you know, par for course, um, really for the most part, those of us who really understand what, where we need to go, right? Um, just incredible, it's just incredible. And I really do think it, it reflects the kinds of things that we've been doing in here. So it's been an honor, yeah. Great, yeah. Um, final question, uh, it's kind of a more global one, but why do you think we're seeing stuff, uh, the rise of people like Trump, Modi, uh, Netanyahu, although he was there earlier, um, you know, Arben, you know, uh, not Arben, yeah. uh, Orban in, in Hungary. Why do you think we were seeing this type of kind of overt nationalist, um, very right wing quasi authoritarianism rise? Any ideas? Yeah, I think it's because we have income inequality. Um, people are in crisis, we are in pain, and we don't have a government that is actually doing anything about it. Um, we have political leaders that are much more interested in keeping the status quo the way it is because it benefits them. Um, and they ju have just added and added and added to the income inequality that we have and the quality of life that keeps going down. You know, we I talked earlier about how I don't think I would have succeeded in quite the same way or at all now. Um, than I did when the opportunities I was given, right, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, when I was coming up. Um, of course, people are discontent, right? So when we do that, um, and when we draw these divides between people, um, we tend to make those systems much worse. We tend to make sure that we are separating folks. Um, and then people dig in their heels, and they go towards hate, and they go towards, you know, all the kinds of the wrong things that we need because people do feel more insecure, right. um, especially, you know, the majority party. And I think that the rest of us um, are not standing up enough. Um, we're not coming together enough. We're not demanding the kinds of things that we actually need because of fear. Right. right? Um, I think that's the core of it. I think that, and one of the things that the progressive movement is really about for me is um, courage and optimism over fear. And really, at the end of the day, that is what's going to take us forward. And I'm not talking this sort of optimism in this very, you know, Pollyanna right. you know, positivity kind of way. I'm talking about really deep, you know, gritty things that we have to work towards. Um, and we absolutely do um, when we come together. And it's it, I'm talking about the hard work that's needed um, to really commit to that cause and really dismantle the systems that we have. Um, and at the end of the day, that's absolutely what we need to do to move forward um, and to combat the kind of hate um, that's coming from governments all across, including um, from the White House on a daily basis, right? We we need political leaders who are going to stand up and call that out, who are going to say that is not right, um, that is not true. And we need people who don't just start labeling progressives as divisive and extremists. I mean, it's extremist right now to not advocate for right, a single payer healthcare system right. in the middle of a pandemic. It's extremist right now to say, yes, I'm going to keep taking corporate PAC money, even though I know that's at the root of policies that are not taking place. Right. Um, it's extremist to sit there and say, I'm not taking bold climate action because it's not going to go anywhere. Right. That's, that's the real extreme um, that we're doing. That's, really policies that are rooted in fear. We have no time for them yeah. at all. So Yeah, and they're radical. Yeah. They're just right-wing radical. I agree. They're inhumane radical. Yeah. yeah. Um all right, great. Well, thank you so much. Um I will add your your um I'll put your links into your uh Twitter, your website, uh the prime uh, your primaries on 7 
Seven. Primary's on 7-7, July 7th. By the so, way, my yeah. birthday is 7-11. Another thing people oh. should be very aware of. I'm just kidding. 7-7, um, seven, seven, that's easy to remember. Um, and great. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so that's how many weeks away is that? That's uh, next week? Next. That is six days away from today. Six days away. So it's what yeah. day? Oh, yeah, it's a t- t- Tuesday, right. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming. And, uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Gr- best of luck. And uh, we'll tweet you and all that. And, uh, oh great yeah. thank you so much i really yeah. appreciate it this is really fun thank you for yeah thank thanks for having for me on. on yeah yeah <laughs> take care bye oh that was forgot you'll hear during my interview with don and mom which i recorded last week she and i discuss vanilla ice's concerts now probably because people were watching the live stream where i was interviewing donna and they heard this discussion uh vanilla ice decided to cancel the concert he was going to put on amidst criticism, and I'm pretty sure that criticism included the criticism in which Donna and I engaged. Let's bring on Donna Imam. Hello. <laughs> hey, Katie, Thank how you are you? For joining us. Hi. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Thank you for joining. And um, uh, Donna Imam is running for Congress in the, in the great state of Texas. That's right. Um, Everything's bigger here. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of uh, stuff to trim. Um, te- so tell us what made you want to run? Yeah, great question. Every- everybody asks me that, right? Okay. So why do you want to run? Uh, so, so I'll tell you the story, right? Uh, when I started out as the first female design engineer ever hired in the 100-year his- history of Duncan Metering, uh, very early on in my career, uh, I used to work in the research and development uh, portion of the company and the assembly uh, area was downstairs and very early on in my career, every single assembly worker was laid off. Their jobs were moved to Mexico. Many of them never worked a day in their lives and none of them, not a single one of them had any job retraining options and that always left an impact with me. So throughout my career, what I did is. I tried to help other people with their careers, you know, write their resumes, help them with LinkedIn, mentor other young women to try to, uh, you know, ensure that their careers flourish, get a better job, get promoted, et cetera, et cetera. Now, about six or seven years ago, I joined a nonprofit and I joined this nonprofit because I really love the idea of education. Uh, My mom was a school teacher. uh, My dad's a scientist. And they've always told me the best way to help people is to give them all the tools to be successful in life. So this uh, nonprofit, it provides free training and education to anybody who wants it. And it was in a bit of a bad shape. So I took it. uh, I took, you know, part in part in uh, growing the nonprofit. We raised tens of thousands of dollars. We grew it to a 4000 member nonprofit. I was elected to be president of that nonprofit. And throughout that experience, I really saw what working Texans face. And I realized that we weren't going to solve any of these problems with a nonprofit, that we had major systemic challenges in the way our economy is set up, how it's built, how it's structured, and the way it discriminates against certain, you know, people, whether it's age discrimination or whether it's race discrimination or whether it's, you know, discrimination against people of different sexuality or whatever, right? There's so many things in our systems that need to be transformed. And that is what led me to realize that we have to get involved in our democracy. We cannot sit on the sidelines and expect someone else to solve our problems. And the middle class and even upper middle class people are some of the people that are contributing to this economy along with the bottom half, by the way, of our country in the biggest way. And one of the things that I like to talk about is that every single penny of wealth in this country 
It doesn't matter where it comes from. It's created by people who work for a living, people who get up every single morning at 8 a.m. and go to work and work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, creating wealth for this country. Yet this wealth has not been available to them. And that's why I'm running for Congress. That's why our entire district is energized like, wow, somebody actually understands the challenges I'm going through, the fact that I can't put food on the, ta food on the table for uh, my kids, the fact that I'm struggling to pay my bills, the fact that I have student loans bigger than my mortgage and I can't afford to put a down payment on a mortgage because after I pay for my rent and my student loans, I got nothing. And by the way, even if I have a job and I lose a job, in the middle of that, I have no health insurance because I lost my health insurance with my job and I can't go see a doctor. And that's not even talking about the servers and the waitresses and every single other person out there working hourly jobs that have absolutely no ability to go see a doctor when they get sick. And that's just completely illogical. And that is why I'm running for Congress because I'm a problem solver. My experience and background is solving large scale, difficult problems breaking them down into little pieces, solving them, stitching them back together. And we need that in our country because all these problems, the best news is all these problems are solvable. They can be solved in a really, really smart economical, you know, financial way. And that's what I like to say. I'm bringing the financial case for what we believe is the morally right thing to do. And that's why I'm running for Congress, Katie. What do you say? Great. Sounds good. You have my vote. <laughs> I'm not a Texan, awesome. but I, I, I Texas identify starting uh, as of 847 uh, Wednesday night. Um, and who are you running against? What are you, who are you facing? Yeah, so the current representative is a nine-term Trump-endorsed, you know, build-a-wall GOP rep who has done nothing for this district. So here's the thing. If you had a baby in 2003, that baby would now be old enough to graduate from high school probably looking for a job or wanna to go to trade school or wanna to go to college. Yet the cost of college over this time has grown thousands of percentage more expensive in comparison to the wages that we're getting. It's completely impossible for your kids to have a great opportunity. And we're not just talking about the bottom half of this country, by the way. If you're middle class, upper middle class, if you make over $75,000 as a family, your kids get nothing. Try sending two kids to college in this country. Mm. It's like getting two mortgages. So these are real problems that every single mom and dad is facing on a daily basis. Not to mention if your kids are going to uh, you know, high school here, you're challenged with the quality of teachers. The teachers are not being paid really well. So we're not attracting the best talent where the rest of the world, China and India are investing millions and billions of dollars into education. We're telling our kids, oh, well, it's too bad. We're just not gonna pay your teachers. So, you know, if you get an education, you get one, but if you don't, too bad. And that's just, that's just silly. Um, so these are the challenges that we're trying to solve here in this district that we have. Wow, okay, sounds, uh, sounds very uh, inspiring. Um, what was your, so you talked a little bit about your political process. Um, what kind of, I was, I was actually um, interviewing um, our RT uh, Crybeck right before I was talking to you. Um, and I was one, and we were talking about her kind of her childhood and, and coming to the United States when she was 11 and her kids and, and how they, even they, as I guess her, her now 12 year old son was eight um, and was able, and was afraid that her, that his, that she would be deported or his grandparents would be deported under Trump. So I, I was just curious, like what kind of personal experiences um, shaped your politics? 
Yeah, so here's the thing, right? My parents are immigrants to this country. And what we see right now is if you look at the pandemic, for example, right? Look at the people who are on the front lines of this pandemic, the doctors and the nurses. I don't know if you guys saw the story on CBS. There was a family of four nurses, a dad and three kids, okay? These people were on the front lines of this pandemic. You look at the school teachers, you look at doctors in our country, you look at uh, emergency, you know, first response responders in our country. Guess what? They are, many of them immigrants or first generation Americans, right? Many of them are on DACA, by the way. These people have been contributing to our economy in the biggest way possible. And they have been instrumental in our recovery and they're instrumental right now. By the way, COVID cases in Texas are spiking. You saw today, it was trending on Twitter that we have the most number of cases in Texas. Well, guess who those doctors are in those COVID COVID uh, wards? They are in many cases immigrants and children of immigrants, and many of them are on DACA. And our whole challenge is that if you want to find someone who's actually sat there and filled in someone's DACA application, that person is me. I've worked on other people's DACA applications. I've worked with kids who said, you know what, I don't know how to fill this out. Where do I get the money, the $600 to go apply or whatever? And we, have, we you're bringing in somebody into our you know, Congress that really understands the nitty gritty details of what these families are going through. And here's the thing that you guys should know. Kids that are on DACA today, they get a two-year extension every time, right? And in between, they have to go renew their driver's license. So if they don't get their DACA application in time, like approved before it expires, they could be without a driver's license, which means they can't even go to the grocery store. That's how ridiculous our immigration system is. And there's very few people who understand the challenges that these people are going through and that they can't even go to work. So if you're a doctor and a first responder and your DACA application runs out, guess what? You're gonna have to find someone else to drive you and you could get pulled over. And by the way, if for some reason, even if your driver's license is not renewed on time, you could get pulled over and you could be detained indefinitely because they can't prove that you're actually in status and that you cannot be deported. And we saw hundreds of these cases around the country, by the way, where people were, just because they looked different, they had a different name, they were detained because they assumed, oh, well, you might not be a US citizen because you don't look like a US citizen, whatever that is, right? So these are the things that have that I've seen in the communities in my district. And by the way, my district is overwhelmingly, you guys know this, right? The Latino and Hispanic population in Texas has grown over 2 million, over 2 million in the last decade here. And if you look at my district in Bell County, we have two two, um, uh, counties here, Williamson and Bell County. Bell County is majority Hispanic, Latino, Black and Asian, right? So we see these challenges every single day. In my district during uh, the time that, you know, all these DACA applications were going around, people were afraid like, since Trump came into office, people are afraid to ride buses in this district because they're being detained uh, by, you know, traffic police. And they don't know what's going to happen to them. These are the challenges that people in this district are facing. And that's the kind of perspective that I'm bringing uh, when it comes to uh, running for Congress. And um, have you had these types of politics for a while? Or is this, uh, did you go through kind of a personal evolution? I mean, I know you talked about with, uh, how, how you did with your job, but I'm curious if there was a, something that radicalized you, uh, if there was a politician who radicalized you, something you saw, a story. 
No, I don't consider myself radicalized at all. I think that I'm bringing the most sensible financial solutions and I have the right. proof to go with it. It doesn't matter what policy you talk about. I can tell you why it's great. And by the way, I have these conversations with independents, Republicans, Democrats, when I say radicalized, left, right. I should, I should explain. I don't mean radicalized in like your, these ideas aren't radical, as Sanders always yeah. says, like they're exactly. actually mainstream. So I should say they're presented as radical by like the powers that be and the mainstream, yeah. you know, media and, and political and corporate elites present them as radical. Yeah. So I, that's no. what I meant by, yeah. I mean, honestly, there is no point in my life. I've always been a big believer of freedom. I've been a big believer of individuality and financial independence. That's what I've always been. And when I, when I look at what's happening in our country where we're doing all the work, we're creating all the value, but we're not getting any of the advantages. So for example, if you work for a company and you work 10, 20 years, or you even work five years and all of a sudden you get laid off, you got nothing. Okay, you got nothing. So to me, these are sensible solutions and I've always believed in them. And what I believed was that through service to my country, through running a nonprofit, through helping others, that we could solve them. But when I ran a nonprofit and raised tens of thousands of dollars and realized, wait a second, we can't do this. We have to create better systems. These systems are completely in a, done in a way to favor only like the 0.01% of the population. That's when I realized, look, we got to get involved. People who work, average people who work for a living. I'm just an average engineer who gets up in the morning, works and creates great products for our economy, right? That's my background. We have to get involved in the process. That's my thought. I couldn't sit back and sit here and see people just not accomplishing anything. I feel frustrated that they're not solving these problems that can be so easily solved. And that's what got me off my couch, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Um, also, uh, so I saw that uh, Texas is trending as well as vanilla ice um, <laughs> because uh, reading on Twitter from the Austin Chronicle, Governor Greg Abbott's executive order closing all bars effectively put an end to in-person concerts, one notable exception. <laughs> Sorry. Vanilla ice at Emerald Point Bar and Grill on Friday. So, um, yeah, vanilla ice is um, he's freezing through. I don't know the metaphor. He's uh I don't know. I can't think of it. But uh, Vanilla Ice is uh, the exception to the rule. I mean, I've always thought he's exceptional, but uh, exceptional a different way now. Uh, is that something that's all being discussed in Texas? Is this breaking news? Um, were you aware of this? Is this going to be part of your platform? Um, are you going to take a position <laughs> on Vanilla Ice concerts? Look, here's the thing. Are you going to tell we people have to co stop, collaborate, and listen? Sorry. Yeah, exactly, right? Look, we have COVID cases. We have more hospitalizations. We have over 6,000 people in hospitals right now. We are at capacity in Houston. This stuff is serious, guys. People who have somebody in their family that right now has coronavirus, that is suffering, that needs to be hospitalized or is trying to get a test. For example, one of the people who was working on my campaign called me yesterday and, he, and she said, Donna, you know, my grandkid is six years old and has all the symptoms and is unable to get a test here in Texas. Do we really want to see our loved ones in this kind of terror of having COVID? We don't know the ramifications. We do know that COVID not only affects the lungs, but it affects your kidneys, it can affect your heart, it can affect your brain. This stuff is serious. We got to do what the science tells us. The science is really simple. We have to shut this down by maintaining a distance and doing the things that we need to do, which is not transmit from one person to another. If you're going to a concert, 
you can be sure that there are going to be challenges and there's going to be issues, especially what's happening in Texas right now. Serious business. I think we should take this seriously. Um, and by the way, by the way, not taking it seriously is going to prolong this for years. It's going to make it worse. And if you if you're one of those people who believes in individuality and independence and you want to open up the economy, you're just delaying that process. And I, I, by the way, I'll give you a fact. Most of the wealthy people in this country, the upper 50% in this country is not spending a single penny. They're not going out to fancy restaurants, they're not going to concerts, and they're not going on vacations and holidays. So the people who are spending money is the bottom 50 on essentials like groceries and paying their rent, etc. But the top 50 is not spending any money. So if you own a bar or you own a place which is for entertainment, you're not going to bring back the real money here until we shut down coronavirus. And we need to do that. Yeah. I mean, there is an issue, right, of like, I, I mean, these are like, um, Abbott is obviously a craven person. There's no doubt about it. He's been that way for a while. Uh, he's pretty much, a, you know, kind of a monstrous person, um, to put it mildly. But there are people who really are not, you know, whether they're libertarian, they have a libertarian streak, they're anti-government. I mean, people are not being taken care of, right? Their needs are not being met. And I do think it's like, I, I'm not at all, I'm not encouraging people to go to a vanilla ice concert in these conditions. But there does seem to be a gap between what people need and what the government is providing, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm someone who's sitting at home, and I'm very, you know, protected and sheltered in lots of ways. Um, because I, you know, have a podcast, and I do another podcast, and that hasn't been disrupted. But what what needs to be done? What kind of programs need to be put into place so that it doesn't come off as we're as a kind of like liberal um, dismissal of people's like lived experiences and the pain that they are suffering? Not that you were doing that. I think a lot of people are doing that, though, myself included. Look, here's the thing. Our government took out a $6,000 plus loan on every single man, woman and child in this country. OK, they've mortgaged your kids. Most of that money went to corporations. We're not going to address coronavirus unless we go on a proper full shutdown and address the challenges of social distancing. And you're not going to be able to solve this if you actually don't practice the four things that I talk about. Number one, going down on a full shutdown for three to four weeks. Number two, making sure that if you absolutely have to be in an essential job, that you have testing available and testing needs to be scaled to a point that you can be tested frequently often and it's available to you all the time if you're an essential job. Number three, if you absolutely have to interact with anybody at all, you have to wear a mask because none of us know who's got it and who's spreading it and it works. The solution is out there. There are other countries that are doing it successfully. It's completely ludicrous for us not to do the same. Okay, so that's number three. And number four, we need to do contract tracing. And if we did all four of those together for just four weeks, and if we had done it in March, we our economy would be back much better, much stronger. People wouldn't be sick. People wouldn't be in the hospital. And, and 120,000 plus families in this country would not be burying a loved one, which has happened. And by the way, we talk about older folks dying. But there's younger folks dying. There are kids that have lost both parents to coronavirus. And there are young people that have passed away, too. So this is... This is a lot of pain for a lot of families, and we can do this by doing this, those four things. Yeah. And uh, more than probably giving people more money to stay at home. 
Um, well, they took they took more than a six thousand dollar loan on you. If they'd given you right, that, you right. could have stayed home for four weeks and been comfortable. You yeah. could have even gotten your groceries delivered. Yeah, it is really that. That's the radical thing, right? Is like these half-assed measures when it's literally life and death. Any anything else that you want to make sure that uh, we talk about? I'm seeing if there are any someone uh, nationalized green steel processing, hella revenue, general strike, of course. Uh, what else? Um, justice. We want to talk about justice, justice in this yeah. country. You know, we, it was just two weeks ago that every single state in this country had a protest because of a George Floyd video. And I want people to know this. For every George Floyd video that we've seen, there are hundreds of videos that do not exist. And by the way, Black Americans in the United States are not just being discriminated when it comes to law enforcement. It's discrimination when it comes to health care, maternal Mortality rates among black women, two to three times higher than white women. It, when it comes to education, being having ability to get educated without a huge debt, a mortgage, okay? When it comes to finding high wage jobs, when it comes to being discriminated on a daily basis, when we talk about you know going into a store and being charged on future theft, where a 68 year old woman was you know attacked and assaulted by by uh, a policeman because they thought she was taking out a TV that she hadn't purchased, which she had, she and her son had purchased it and they were just transporting it to their car. This humiliation of black Americans in our country has been going on for decades and centuries. And our campaign has been, a, has been proactive. We've written a two page white paper, equal justice for all. We need to enact it enough. We've had protests, enough is enough. Now we need action. And I think that is something that's really big that every single American should stand up for. It's time, it's 2020. How many more days are we gonna wait while people die because they don't have healthcare, because they can't get education, but because a cop pulls you over because you know your uh, indicator light is, is broken and then searches your car for something else, right? How many more decades of this are we gonna put up with? Enough is enough, come on guys. Let's get together, let's solve these problems. We have this amazing opportunity north of Austin, right? We're in this runoff, July 14th is our runoff, right? Early voting is going on right now. We are here because of amazing people in our district and around the country who have heard of our race and, and are like, wow, we have somebody with solutions. You have a choice in representation in every single district around this country. People need to know you have a choice in representation. Go find out who's representing you and get on board and let's get these people in Congress because we're the ones who are going to solve our problems. Nobody's going to solve them for us. Nobody's going to come and save us. We're going to save, we're going to save ourselves. Mm. Yeah. All right. Great. <laughs> I'm convinced. Uh, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, anything else you want to make sure that uh, we talk about, address? Well, look, we are a grassroots campaign, okay? We're here because of generous donations from people all around the country. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but we would love any kind of support you can give. If you can give anything, we would love it. We would really come in use right now. We're doing direct voter contact. And the more voters we get our message to, by the way, every single time we get our message to the voter, we win. We win, hands down, it doesn't matter who they are. Once they hear our message, we win. So help us get our message. And if you can't give, if you can just call 20 people for us, contact at votefordonna.com, call 20 of our voters, tell them about our message, and let's get 
these ideas into Congress. Let's get them implemented and let's get Americans this amazing life that we can all have. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I put your Twitter in the in the uh, chat. And, okay. Um, and my uh, website is votefordonna.com. Awesome. Great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, everyone, thank you very much. Um, and uh, people are thanking you on the chat. And, um, yeah, Texas is interesting. You guys have both things going on. You got, like, a real conservative streak, and then you kind of have a left populist streak. Um, so, Jim Hightower if you will. Uh, and I recommend the movie. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, North star, Lone star, Lone star. It's a good movie. Jonathan sales. Hey, I want to leave you with one piece of hope. Do you guys know that single payer healthcare, Medicare for all is more popular in Texas? Uh, majority of Texans support it. Most people don't know this. And the reason they support that. it. Yeah. Most, the reason they support it, Texas has the most uninsured people in the entire country. Wow. Majority of Texans support single-payer Medicare for all. So there you go. There's your piece of data. That's how we're going to get it done. Yeah, and someone wrote less than 3% to flip. It's actually possible. Yep, 8,000 votes. And by the way, we right. have more than 50,000 people move into just one of two districts because of the growth of Austin. Williamson County is one of the top 10 fastest-growing counties in the entire country by percentage. Bell County, also huge growth. We just need to get our message to the voter. So I ask you, come join us. Let's do great. this. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Katie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. See you soon. We have another guest coming on, um, Ross Serencioni. This video is not for the establishment. I'm a progressive Democrat running for Congress. As a working class American, I waited tables to put myself through college. Now I'm a public servant. And as a government housing attorney, I fight for what I believe in. Two years ago, my son was born. My life was changed forever. I promised him that I would do whatever it takes to build a better future. But our future is at stake. By 2035, New Jersey homes will be underwater. We'll lose billions in property value. Heat waves, drought, mass extinctions, tornadoes, the climate crisis is here. The way forward is to invest in our future. We can create millions of high-paying jobs to usher in a modern age of renewable technology, rebuild our infrastructure, and create the greatest middle-class America has ever seen with the Green New Deal. I believe Americans should have the right to breathe clean air, drink pure water, and to enjoy a healthy environment. Most Americans live paycheck to paycheck. We work longer hours, but our wages stay the same. The cost of healthcare keeps rising, but covers less. Millions of people have no health insurance, and every year, people die because they can't afford it. That's why I support Medicare for All, because it will save money and save lives. Running for Congress wasn't in my plan. When our representatives said no to the Green New Deal and no to Medicare for All, that's when I knew now is the time to fight. Politicians that take big money from oil and gas lobbyists will never solve the climate crisis. Politicians that take big money from health insurance and pharma lobbies will never give us Medicare for All. We win when we elect people that reject big money. That's why I've pledged to take no fossil fuel corporate PAC, or lobbyist money to stay true to working class Americans. 
we must eliminate corruption in politics. And we won't stop there. We can have opportunity for all with free public college and student loan debt cancellation. And we can have a federal jobs guarantee with a living wage. We can invest in our families with universal childcare and paid family leave. New Jersey deserves a leader who puts our working class families first. My name is Russ Serencioni and I'm fighting for justice. Together, we will create an America that works for all of us. Go to my website at russforus2020.com. Now, without any further ado, none other than the star of that very video, <laughs> the movie star that is Russ Serencioni. Welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, Katie. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us what made you uh, want to run. You know, honestly, like the core of my being is just is so disappointed with the failure of our government to address the major problems of our time, really. For how long uh, have we been left out of conversations uh, that we should be actually put front and center? I'm 33 years old. I'm a millennial. And if we get a bad rap for, like, I don't know, wrecking industries, the next industry I think we're coming for is the uh, establishment corrupt machine. And it's time that we have a real people-powered movement, a real movement, uh, a government that really cares about everyone in this country uh, who's been left behind for far too long. And I appreciate that you have not lost the accent, by the way. I say that <laughs> as a New Yorker who has a, I don't know, do you think I have a New York accent? Do you hear it or, or does it seem neutral to you? I hear it and I love it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, so I appreciate the, uh, that you have the neighbor, the neighborly accent of, the, <laughs> of New Jersey. Do you come from like progressive politics? Your, your parents political? What kind of politics were you raised with? Uh, my parents were really not political. Uh, I think they voted for Bush back in the day, but definitely, um, you know, they voted for Bernie and Hillary and Obama after I, I started. <laughs> I started really introducing them to the uh, the way of the world and how Republicans are just the worst. <laughs> but I, I've been a public servant for five years now. I've worked for actually New York State government in Midtown Manhattan as a government lawyer and. I don't know if you've ever had experience with rent stabilization apartments or yeah. rent stabilized apartments. The agency I work for forces that law and I go into courtroom a lot and just defend that law, make sure everybody's held accountable, make sure nobody's above the law. You know, a lot of times I'm up against uh, really large landlords that think that they could just ignore the rules and get away with it. But it's my job to persuade courts to hold them accountable. It's really giving me a great, uh, honestly, I have a lot of courage to stand up to anybody and, um, you know, look them in the eye and say that their games don't work with me. <laughs> Tell us about your your beloved uh, opponent, Polony. Oh my gosh, um, he's very powerful. He's been in office for thirty two years. He uses his power to serve corporate interests. He takes millions of dollars from pharma, from healthcare, uh, from fossil fuel companies, Wall Street, even military industrial complex, uh, every kind of lobbyist that you can imagine. So he's used his power as chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee to single-handedly shut down. Uh, last year, he shut down AOC's uh, proposal for a climate change subcommittee. And uh, he's also used his power to block a Green New Deal. Uh, to, he hasn't held hearings on universal health care until uh, December after I've confronted him like five times in person asking him to do something like that. Uh, and he's been blocking Medicare for all. He's been... He profits from a system that exploits and he profits from the corrupt campaign finance system. Everything that he does has some kind of provision tucked into it to benefit his corporate donors. Right. Billions of handouts. And that's what really upsets me a lot about our government. 
you want to share a particularly bad one or, or is it, or is he too well-rounded and well-balanced? <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of bad ones, honestly. Um, so th- his alternative to the green new deal is something that'll put us on a path of fossil fuel pipelines until 2050. Uh, it, in that bill, it requires our tax dollars to go and repair and replace fossil fuel pipelines. That's another reason I got involved in this race because, um, a fossil fuel company tried to put a pipeline through our township a few miles away from us that would carry frack gas through the Raritan Bay. And I'm running because, you know, my son's three years old and he, we have a tiny window of opportunity to fix this climate crisis. And if we don't, then all of our future, we're all intertwined in this planet. But it, it might be one of fire and brimstone like in Australia. Right, and right. Pallone infamously blocked Akana and Rokana bill from getting voted on because he endorsed AOC in 2018, even when he went on to endorse Crowley too. My stand-up guy. Has anything been surprising to you during this? Um, have you learned anything that you didn't expect to, to learn or see? Yeah, I've learned a lot. I've learned how um, a lot of people that just have no history of voting, once you reach out to them and talk about the issues that affect their lives, they actually become really interested. Uh, in in politics and like are, are willing to to get out there fill out fill out a vote by mail ballot or you know s- uh, commit to go vote on election day. I think really that's what we're what we need right now in our country. We need more people uh, that care about a common good, uh, the uh, you know our collective voice that really want to vote. You know because in 2016, if um, if the party of I, I just don't care enough to go out and vote was would have elected somebody, that party would have won. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about people that you've endorsed or people who uh, have endorsed you? Oh, uh, Anything actually, you want to brag about? <laughs> yeah, a couple of things. Uh, Andrew Yang actually endorsed me a wow. few weeks ago. Yeah, I, honestly, I it was surreal having like a an hour interview with him. Uh, how how really down to earth and yeah. uh, and willing willing to think outside the box is what I like about Andrew Yang a lot. And um, the, the, representing the humanity forward vision where we want to really work together and just try new things, let data, let, let the math, let the facts guide our policies and try new and exciting ideas for our country. So we could really learn what's best, what works and continue, you know, building and improving ourselves. You're ranked one of the top three most pro-union, pro-labor candidates. What was the criteria for that? Uh, so data for progress is a polling firm. They just looked at, uh, you know, stated policies on my website and also my Twitter account and how often I was tweeting about, you know, unions really are the way we get democracy in the workplace. I mean, but it makes sense that I'm one of the highest ranked pro-union members because I'm a member of a union. You know, I work for New York state government and we're represented by a union that always fights for better wages, better working conditions, and always has your back. So I think that's really one of the, one of the, We've seen the decline of, you know, um, economic equality. We've seen the increase of economic inequality with the decline of unions ever since Ronald Reagan started busting them up. Do you come from a labor family or a union family? Uh, well, my mom's a teacher and my, my dad uh, actually is not represented by a union, but he wishes he was, right. <laughs> to be honest, because, um, you know, he's still working hard at uh, 64 years old, so... Great. And anything else that you want to make sure people talk about or know about? Um, any other messages? Absolutely. Um, if you care about any any kind of political activity, you should definitely get involved with the local campaign. I really recommend it. Honestly, uh, during COVID, 
a lot of our team was hit with a little bit of, um, I guess, cabin fever and a little bit of feeling down. But the solution, honestly, right now is to get on the phones and phone bank. No joke. It makes you feel a lot better when you speak to people and have that great conversation every couple of minutes. Uh, if we, we have to fight for what we want to see in this world, and uh, if it's it's up to us to do it. So it'll really help to cure the cabin fever blues. <laughs> Go to the website, rustforus2020.com. Uh, it's coming down to the wire, but it, honestly, every single phone call uh, makes makes a difference. No joke. The election is July 7th, 7-7. Seven, seven, right. Uh, a few days before your birthday. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to the viewers. Please support yeah. Katie on Patreon. Yeah. Thank and, you. Yeah, of course. And uh, you're doing great work. And I, I'm going to continue watching your awesome show. So thank great. you. Thank you. You can support <laughs> me after seven, seven. I will. You know that. Yeah. Oh, you not you. That. I meant, vi- I meant listeners. I'm, oh. I'm, you know, <laughs> first support the politicians and me. Yeah. Great. And then you got another nice comment. We need people like Russ so badly in our government. Good luck to you. What's your son's name, by the way? Cole. Cole oh, nice. Robert. Yeah. Nice. All right. Yeah, he's, um, he's getting big. <laughs> yeah. He's a towhead? Blonde kid still? Or was he he was blonde before, right? He's still I guess yeah, not a still... towhead. He's like dirty blonde. Yeah, he's got dirty blonde hair. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, how does he know my birthday? Because I announced it. I announced my birthday a couple uh minutes ago uh, when i was yeah. uh yeah i was watching the show a couple yeah yeah, yeah. Ago, Someone asked that. yeah 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 thank you yeah um all right well thank you so much and best of luck okay katie thank you so much bye night, night donna imam is a u.s congressional candidate for texas's 31st district to find out more about her go to vote for donna.com you can also follow her on twitter at donna imam T-X. That's D-O-N-N-A-I-M-A-M-T-X. First, I interview R.T. Krybeck, who is running against a very Trumpian Democrat named Josh Gottheimer. He votes with Trump more than almost any other Democrat. Uh, so, of course, that means that Nancy Pelosi and AFSCME, the union, uh, are supporting him, not uh, R.T. Krybeck, who is an actual progressive, as you'll see from this interview. And to find out more about R.T., you can go to R.T. for Congress. That's R.T. for Congress. A-R-A-T-I for Congress. You can also go to her website. Then I interview Russ Sirincioni, and you can follow him on Twitter at russforus2020. And his website is sirincioni2020.com. That's C-I-R-I-N-C-I-O-N-E 2020.com. He's way better than Frank Pallone, as you'll see. Donna and Russ have been endorsed by Andrew Yang, and RT has been endorsed by the Sunrise Movement and Bernie Sanders and Ayanna Presley. So again, makes total sense that Nancy Pelosi has endorsed the straight white male, Trump-enabling, Trump fan, also abusive apparently to his uh, staffers, congressman from Jersey, who... Um, is also has voted for Trump's border wall. I mean, he's just like basically the worst. Anyway, anywho, sorry, I get frustrated about that stuff. So Russ and RT's elections are July 7th and Donna's in a runoff and there's early voting until, until July 10th. So get her done.